Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Today is Friday, August 9th, 2019. This is Roland Martin Unfiltered, broadcasting live from Miami, site of the National Association of Black Journalists Commission. Coming up on today's show, it's been five years of the death of uh, Mike Brown. We'll talk to his father about uh, this day, uh, how the family feels, and what he still wants to do to seek justice uh, for the police officer who shot and killed his son. Also uh, on the show, we'll talk about uh, Brian Banks, a brother who served time in prison for a crime he did not commit. My interview with him on the very issue. Vice President Joe Biden screws up again. He says that poor kids can learn as much as white kids. Hmm. I'll unpack that and why the media plays a role in that sort of thinking. Uh, also, folks, uh, on the show, a brother wants to buy a home. He is about to close on it, then discovers that the homeowner is applied to, be to the KKK. I don't think he bought the house. It's time to bring the funk and roll Martin unfiltered. Let's go.
Folks, that's what it sounded like on the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, five years ago, August 2014, when Mike Brown was killed by Ferguson police there. Uh, what had transpired since was really well, the Black Lives Matter really blew up. Activists all across the country launched initiatives leading to massive protests across the country. Also, legislation that began to change the whole dynamic when it comes to mass incarceration as well as police brutality. Of course, uh, Dorian Johnson was one of those men uh, who said that Mike Brown had his hands up at the time of the shooting. Of course, people also remember uh, that uh, the body of Mike Brown uh, was there in the streets for a very long period before his body was taken away, causing, again, more people to be angry with how the treatment took place. So many things have taken place since the death of Mike Brown five years ago but certainly for his family. Uh, it was a very difficult situation uh, because they're still dealing with that. His mother, of course, uh, Carolyn McFadden, she ran for public office recently for the city council, did not win. But right now, we're joined by Mike Brown uh, Sr., the father of Mike Brown, uh, to get uh, his thoughts and reflections on this day and what he still wants to see happen when it comes to justice for his son. Michael, Roland Martin, welcome to Roland Martin Unfiltered. How you doing, brother? Man, it's good to, to always talk to you and see you. Unfortunately, uh, we connected as a result of the death of your son. Uh, even though it's five years later, it still has to be hard for you uh, not to be able uh, to hug your son, to see him grow up, to see him date, to see him uh, go to work, uh, and not to uh, hear uh, his uh, sound of his voice uh, at all. What are your feelings uh, on this day five years later? Uh, definitely emotions is all over the place, you know, uh, we still dealing, you know, today ended up being a, 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 a okay day. We had, uh, had the press conference this morning, uh, demanding the, the prosecutor, the new prosecutor to reopen the case. 11 a.m. We did the regular, um, ceremony, you know, and then now we, we are into community day where we have vendors and people, we have people from all over the place here, you know, so it, it's kind of, it, it's kind of happy, sad, you know, day, you know, because I'm definitely seeing people enjoy their self out here. So that kind of helps. It kind of helps. When we hear the phrase, someone did not die in vain, the reality is the death of your son coming on literally right after the death of Eric Garner, um, the death of, uh, of course, um, uh, in uh, Walmart in Beaver Creek, Ohio, of John right. Crawford III. All of right. those deaths literally happened weeks apart. Mm -hmm. If we you can know. say his death was not in vain, is that it led to this massive resistance, the waking up of a generation of people who said, like Fan Lou Hamer, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And they really took to the streets and organized and really began to move. And now we have DAs, progressive DAs being elected. You have a new district attorney there in St. Louis County. You have folks who are now talking about mass incarceration. We had pressure on Congress, pressure on President Barack Obama, pressure on governors. All of that really came out of, not just, of course, uh, the, uh, the jury verdict in the Trayvon Martin, but really culminated and really took off with the death of your son. That, that has to at least provide you some sense of solace. Well, you know, it's, 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 moving. it's, it's moving forward, you know. Um, definitely, these people that's getting in the office, they need to start doing their, their job, you know. Uh, you've been voted in to do what you're supposed to do or what you're committed to. So we're just waiting to see what's, what's next. Obviously, um, things did not change as fast there in Ferguson. Uh, with the election of a city council there, there was a new police chief in Ferguson as well. Uh, what do you want to see happen now, five years after the death of your son? What more do you want to see done? I want the case reopened. I want the case reopened, and I definitely I want... Uh, police to do more engaging into the community. You know, they need to start knocking on doors, you know, jumping out their car, playing with the community, you know, and introducing themselves as community because they are, they're part of the community, you know. So um, mm -hmm. we definitely need them to start doing a lot of changes on that. And I guess that's a start. 
Well, Mike Brown, uh, it is uh, always a pleasure, brother, to see you. Our prayers certainly continue to go out to you and the family. Uh, it, is a, it is a very difficult day, just like every yes. day uh, since his death. Uh, but uh, I will say that uh, our focus will continue to be highlighting these stories, holding folks accountable, and we certainly want to see other folks, African-Americans and others, stand up for righteousness and holding police accountable uh, for these type of uh, killings, and we certainly appreciate you joining us on this day. No problem. Thank you for having me. All right, brother. Thanks a lot. I want to introduce my panel right now, Johanna DeBlanc, National Security and Foreign Affairs uh, Legal Analyst, Lauren Victoria Burke. Uh, she's with the NNPA, Robert Patillo, Civil Rights Attorney. Robert, I want to start with you, as I said there to Mike Brown Sr. Uh, we saw a tremendous response to the death of Mike Brown. We can talk about Gina Six. We can talk about... Trayvon Martin, the protests and the mobilization um, after his death, but then of course also with the verdict in the George Zimmerman case. Uh, but there was, there was something different that happened with Mike Brown that led to this massive change when it comes to activism in the United States. You're, you're absolutely right. I, I think what it did was in, uh, empower a generation. It empowered a group of people who have never been taught to before, who, uh, who realized that the civil rights movement of the 1960s was not upon Mount Olympus, but rather was built by young people, by young people who were enthusiastic, who were ready to make a change. And I think that this movement still continues, because what we have failed to see is the changes in policing policy that were promised after Ferguson. Every jurisdiction around the country said, we're going to switch to community policing. We're going to get officers out of the cars and walking the streets. We're going to have more people from the neighborhood policing those communities and have more interaction, uh, interaction with the actual citizens between officers. And we have not seen this happen. What we have to do is turn those ideas of activism into actual policies. We've seen new DAs elected, new uh, solicitors elected nationwide. We have to keep that push going. We have to reduce uh, the prison population for African Americans, stop the over-policing of black communities that led to shootings such as Mike Brown, and have an understanding that police policy is community policy, and if we're not involved in such, then we are the victims of such. Uh, Lauren Victoria Burke, the reality is there are some people who say nothing has changed, it's all the same, but frankly, that's a lie. <laughs> that things have actually uh, happened, but the reality is the wheels of justice are slow. Yeah. And uh, the time that people have put in uh, has been effective. You think about the bill that Congressman Bobby Scott passed, where Black Lives Matter activists, where he said to the Republicans, y'all better pass this bill when it comes to uh, police killings or that's going to be a problem. Republicans heard that. So you have seen action. You've seen action on the local, state, national level. It's just a matter of needing more action. Yeah. The con Congressman Scott's bill was, of course, a bill to just count to, to mandate that uh, there had to be a count of people who were killed by police. You would think that we would have been doing that already, but actually we weren't. And to uh, even though the bill passed, it's hard to get the Justice Department to actually do it. I actually think that uh, Michael Brown's death is really sort of attached to Trayvon Martin, which of course happens in 2012, two years before. Uh, obviously there was a legislative push behind Stand Your Ground that was not particularly successful, but what happens two years later in Ferguson uh, was, of course, the furtherance of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, in, a, in a more dramatic way that actually, I think, ignited uh, not just Black Lives Matter and younger, a younger generation of activists, but it actually ignited the older uh, legacy civil rights groups as well, because I think they felt very conscious of the fact that these younger groups were coming, and so they had to do a little bit more and a little bit more than they had been doing, so it really ignited everybody. Uh, it, 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 it not only rose the consciousness, it had some real uh, electoral effects, obviously Wesley Bell uh, and, the, and the defeat of Bob Robert McCullough, which was huge. Uh, so it ignited the Ferguson community to finally wake up to their voting power, which took a long time, probably longer than it should have. But uh, we're at a place now where, thanks to a lot of those activists from Ferguson, there's a, a deeper analysis on criminal justice policy that we didn't see before, and it's a really deep-dive policy-driven analysis. It's not that it wasn't there before, but it's there even more, and, and younger activists are driving it. So that was really good to see. Johanna was also clear that this thing went international. The reality is many of these activists, they've actually traveled around the world aligning themselves with activists from other parts uh, of the globe. Uh, you've had folks uh, in other countries communicating through social media 
uh, talking about uh, what they need to be doing in their countries. And so the death of Mike Brown really did spark a global movement, not just here in the United States. Yeah, Roland Martin, I, I would agree. Um, the, ho the notion of the use of excess excessive force by police officers is not unique only to the United States. It's actually a global phenomenon. In fact, places like South Africa, after um, that incident occurred, people rose up and people were protesting in th their own respective communities, in their own respective countries, about some of the flawed systems that they have that targeted people of color. And as you know, South Africa is a place where, you know, that has a history of the apartheid, a system very similar to the United States when it comes to race relations um, pertaining to people of color. Um, so South Africans um, throughout um, South Africa rallied and, and they were protesting and, and they because they too could could relate to what was happening here in the US but another point I want to make Roland is that yes um, what what happened in, in Ferguson was tragic there have been a, a, a great push there have been a lot of activism but what I want is I want the policies around the use of excessive force the laws to change because ultimately until that law changes in various countries and various jurisdictions you won't really see that much of, of of improvement in terms of how police react when they encounter people of color um in the area of you know how they feel when you know if they're being attacked by by someone or they feel threatened by someone um so until the law changes um at the state local and maybe even the federal level we won't really see much change i really want to see these policies changed well, well, again, though, but the reality is this here, and that is you're not going to see such change on the federal level because, frankly, local law enforcement is local. And that's one of the things I think the activists also learned. There was such a focus on federal right. congressional action, but then for people who didn't understand the process, they begin to realize it's like, okay, goodness, man, I think it's really on the local level, which Absolutely. is why we've seen, we've seen the last five years a different push for to elect district attorneys because they're the ones who actually prosecute they're the ones who go to the grand jury and so again we've seen the election of progressive da's mm -hmm. and the reality um uh, lauren and, and, and robert that would not have happened without this realization in the aftermath of the death of mike brown and the other uh, thing that would not have happened is that in 2015 doj looked at ferguson and saw how the local police department was shaking down the local community in terms of fines and fees and it was so pervasive yep. that the DOJ was able to put together like a huge report on it, something that everybody had suspected that, that the black community was being over-policed, but it had a major economic impact as well. Well, and, and just kind of the, to piggyback on that idea of the federal role in this, let's not undercut the power of the federal government to regulate issues such as this. We have a Department of Justice right now that does not investigate civil rights violations, that does right. not prosecute police officers for even the most egregious cases of police brutality and the violations of individual rights. In the 1960s, what, this, what the Department of Justice was able to do was go into local racist jurisdictions and regulate things and change the local policies that could not be changed on the local level. So while we have these presidential candidates running around talking about busing in the 1970s and talking about um, reparations and talking about every other issue under the sun, we have to make sure we hold their feet to the fire because this is the longest sustained social action that our community has had probably in the last 30 years, and we need to see this taken as a number one priority by the people who are asking for our votes. Yes, and I, I, I agree with that, folks. Hold tight, one second. Hold on, uh, real quick, real quick. Go ahead. And I certainly um, agree with. Um, thank you, Robert, for elaborating on the role that the federal government plays. Because when it comes to allegations of civil rights abuse, it is a federal legislation that governs that. So the federal government does play a role. Now, I also understand that when it comes to the hiring of um, you know, district attorneys and, 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 and such, they also play a critical role, but there also needs to be a police right. reform all across the globe, all across the U.S., rather. Well, but again, though, but, but the reality is there are steps to doing that. Mm -hmm. I think people actually learned that, that it wasn't just like flip a switch and it's actually done. Folks, hold tight one second. I'm going to go to commercial break. When we come back, uh, Vice President Joe Biden makes some interesting comments about poor kids and white kids. I'm going to unpack why the media has played a role in what Joe Biden said. Y'all can't wait for this analysis. I'm broadcasting live from the National Association of Black Journalists Convention here in Miami. Back on Roland Martin Unfiltered in just a moment. You want to check out Roland Martin Unfiltered? 
youtube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. All right, folks, you heard me talk a lot about MarijuanaStock.org. Why? Because I want to keep you informed of investment opportunities that make sense. We have all watched the growth of the cannabis industry. A recent report by New Frontier Data estimates the global cannabis market at over $340 billion. We know that marijuana legalization is sweeping the country state by state. We also know that marijuana has a good cousin, the hemp plant, with a much higher concentration of CBD. That means hemp gives you all of the medical benefits of marijuana without getting you high. Until recently, hemp was farming was practically illegal in the U.S. and heavily regulated by the DEA. However, the 2018 Farm Bill changed all of that, making it legal to grow hemp CBD in the U.S. and creating one of the largest commodities worldwide. And they need land to grow all of the plants. Folks, this is not rocket science. It's just an investment, an incredible investment opportunity. And that's where our good friends at 420 Real Estate come in. In their business model, it is simple. They buy land that supports hemp CBD grow operations and lease it to licensed high-paying tenants. That's right. They are hemp CBD landlords, and you can get in on the action. Our friends at 420 Real Estate decided to do something special for the Roland Martin Unfiltered family. Originally, the minimum investment level was 500 bucks. Right now, though, you can invest in the crowdfunding campaign for as little as $200. The range is from $200 to $10,000. Again, this is a $340 billion industry, okay, that is still growing, and you can get in with as little as 200 bucks. To invest, go to MarijuanaStock.org. That's MarijuanaStock.org. Get in the game, and you can do it now. All right, folks, Vice President Joe Biden made some comments today that had all folks on social media talking. We were discussing in Iowa education and talking about poor kids and white kids. Press play. And the other thing we should do is you should challenge these students. We should challenge students in these schools to have advanced placement programs in these schools. We have this notion that somehow if you're poor, you cannot do it. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids, wealthy kids, black kids, Asian kids. No, I really mean it, but think how we think about it. All right, Robert, folks said, oh, my God, this is a gap. What was he doing? But here's the reality, Robert, that we have to acknowledge. The news media has played a critical role in framing this thing that when you talk about poor, it means black. So not just when it comes to, not just comes to education, but anything. The reality is there are more poor white people in America because there are more white people in America. But what has happened is when you talk about poor, I guarantee you, if you do the study, if somebody says, what's the first thought that comes to your mind when you say poor? They are going to think black. So it's, it's no surprise when Joe Biden made that comment because that's exactly how America thinks because we have been framed to think when you think poor, you mean black. Well, I, I think also the, the media is really trying to help reelect Trump. Because if, <laughs> on the same day that we're talking about 600 migrants getting are uh, getting deported and taken away from their children, we got blood still on the streets in Dayton and in El Paso. We're still getting over the ship them back controversy. We're still getting over the Birmingham controversy. Joe Biden immediately corrected himself within two words, where he said white and then he said wealthy because he meant to say wealthy. And now this is the thing dominating the headlines today. I, I, I we do not understand what we are up against. That since the year 1900, only four elected presidents have not been reelected. If we're going to turn every slip of the tongue by a 70-something-year-old man into a new racist controversy, y'all going to have four more years of Trump, four, eight more years of Pence, then four years of Ivanka, then eight years of Don Jr., and then Eric, and then the apocalypse will be here. So either we're going to have a realistic idea of the way that people speak in crowds, or we're going to turn this into the newest racist controversy. <laughs> uh, Lauren, that, that's what's really stupid about this, because again, if the media had any credibility, if they had any sense whatsoever, they would say, wait a minute, how could that happen? And it is because in this nation, it has been framed, when you say poor, it means black.
Yeah, well, you know, here it is. I mean, Joe Biden is 76 years old. He's been in politics for 46 years. It is no shock to me that he just used uh, African Americans interchangeably with poverty. I mean, this is like not surprising. And, and we're going to see more of this because to me, Joe Biden is in a lot of ways sort of the second coming of Hillary Clinton in terms of being one of these candidates who on paper has the goods, but their electoral history would indicate that there's a reason why they haven't won on a nationwide level. Now, Joe Biden has run before and has had problems before, and there's no reason to think that's not going to happen again. He's got other competition in the race that, frankly, to me, is smarter and quicker than he is, even though these people are not that much younger than he, he, he is. Like, you know, Senator Warren is not that much younger, but she's still smarter and quicker and savvier than Joe Biden is. And we're going to see more of that. And to Robert's point, yeah, I mean, you can't make it easy, okay, all right? I mean, I get that the media is not the best at covering these things. The media has never been particularly good at covering racial topics. But you can't just hand them stuff. And what the RNC is very good at and conservatives and Republican Party are very good at is messaging. So the minute he said that, they got that out there and they got everybody thinking about it and they got it trending on, on Twitter. And, and so now we're all talking about it. So whose fault is that other than Joe Biden? He's got to be ca more careful about what he says. And he's not particularly, that's not something that is his strong suit. And I have a feeling we're going to be having this conversation again. And quite frankly, you know, hate to admit it, but Donald Trump is good at messaging. He's good at comms. He doesn't fool around. He goes right for the juggler. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he wants to get out there. He knows how to fill the box and fill the cycle with his messaging. So everybody running, who's running against him has got to understand that every time something happens. And, and unfortunately to me in this field of Democrats, Biden is not the strongest player when it comes to that. Johanna, bottom line is that I do believe media goes overkill on some of these stories. True. He did immediately <laughs> correct himself. So it's not like he left it there and then um, had sent a press release, a press release out later. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to agree with my co-panelist, um, Robert, here on this on this issue. I think that the media is very strategic. The media knows what people want to hear, right? And people who don't who are not paying attention, people who don't get a chance to read the full story or the full article, will immediately go to the notion that, oh, you know, Senator Biden said, you know, black people are, are poor, something of, of that effect. Um, so it, p people who are critical thinkers will think a little bit deeper into it. But I think the media is doing a really good job in terms of trying to get um, Donald Trump reelected. And I think if we're, and if we're looking for a perfect candidate, we're never going to find one. So good luck with that. Uh, he is going to make mistakes. He is going to say things that may not sound perfect when it's taken out of context. Um, but we have to realize that if the Democratic Party wants a nominee, we right. need to be less divisive uh, and, and less critical. Just to hop in, uh, hop in real quick, mm -hmm. I need the news media to stop being so transparent and trying to mm -hmm. turn Elizabeth Warren into a thing. Elizabeth Warren isn't a thing. She's polling at 12% nationally. I've never seen an Elizabeth Warren bumper uh, sticker. But, 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 but hold on. Every, every, every single debate, there was a debate where Tulsi Gabbard won. They said Elizabeth Warren won. Mm -hmm. Every single new or MSNBC seeing that they're trying to turn Elizabeth Warren into like the new trend, into the new thing, into Coke Zero, but nobody's actually out here calling for it. And that's why they're cannibalizing, doing exactly what President Obama said not to do, which is to form a circular firing squad, trying to make Elizabeth Warren into a thing when the people aren't calling for her as a thing. Warren is polling at number two in the polls well, right now and she is surging in the polls right now and it's not a matter of turning anybody to think there is a reason we have primaries okay and there's a reason why right. the Democratic Party flopped last time by just having Hillary Clinton and anointing anointing her the candidate and deciding that she was going to be it that was a mistake the way you find the best person is you have competition and so there are going to be moments yep. when everybody says, wow, you know, we're criticizing the front runner and that's not a good thing. But that's why you do this, because you do end up, in my view, you do end up with the best person. Not only you're criticizing the front runner, it's just the notion that, that's you it. know, we're not, we're not getting the full story. We're being critical. And we're, it seems like we are looking for a perfect candidate. And that's not going to happen. So we need to wake up and understand that there is no such thing and accept people, candidates, how they are, because we know we have... Biden's track record. Right. He was the vice president to President Barack Obama. And some of the policies under um, the, the Obama administration were not that bad. So I think that he's a good contender and we need to stop this notion of a perfect candidate. All right, folks. Uh, all right, now it's time for our weekly American Worker segment sponsored by AFS CME.
the mean green machine of Africa. All right, folks, we having it. All right, folks, we have a technical issue right now, so guys, let me know when that uh, is actually fixed. I want to go to this uh, next story. Imagine if you're uh, trying to buy a home, and then you go into the home, and you love it, and you're about to close on it, you discover that the homeowner has an application to the KKK. It's actually what happened uh, in Holton, Michigan, uh, where uh, this brother, uh, so first of all, saw a Confederate flag mat on the dining room table, uh, and then, uh, guess what? The homeowner was a police officer. When the family and their real estate agent went upstairs to check one of the bedrooms, um, Robert Mathis and his son noticed a lone wooden plaque holding an aged yellow document. They were disgusted when they saw it was an application to the KKK. Needless to say, they didn't buy the house. One of the things that we got to actually deal with, and we're seeing more of this, Robert, and that is these white supremacists who are on police departments and in the military. Well, well, you know, I had an interview with the KKK on my radio show uh, about a year ago, and one thing they made very clear, because we were talking about the Charlottesville um, uh, protests, is that those are the people that you don't really need to worry about. The people who are out there in the streets waving flags, the ones who wear hoods, the ones who are still burning crosses, aren't the people you need to worry about, because those are the people with no power. Those are the people with nothing to lose. Those are the people who don't care about their faces being on television, because they don't have a job to lose. They don't control anything. The people that we need to be concerned about are the white supremacists who wear uniforms, who put on a suit every day, who put on a robe and sit behind a bench. And they have been working for the past 50 years to rebuild what they call the invisible empire, which is to control this nation, not from the front end, not in the media, not in the streets, but from the levers of power in the background. So this is completely uh, uh, not surprising that these things were there. The only thing surprising is they left them out in the open, because guess what? The Ku Klux Klan application has been digitized for about 15 years now. You can join the Ku Klux Klan on Facebook now. There's an app you can download if you really want to be a Klansman and all these other organizations. So, this, uh, so what we need to do is be more visual not of the overt images of white supremacy and racism, but the actual ideology that's controlling the halls of power, including our judiciary system and our state, state legislatures around the country. Johanna? I think that um, there was one, um, one analyst or, or someone who works either for Fox or CNN indicated that, um, you know, the whole notion of white supremacy is not a real thing and that we need to get over that's to that, that that was that was hold up that was tucker carlson a host on fox news there you go thank you roland martin for that and i think this this shows exactly why people are concerned about white supremacy because it is alive and they are working and they are working hard to ensure that their policies are pushed and that they have their people elected in various offices to push their agenda. So we need to be concerned. And it's very alarming that um, this gentleman, he found that um, in, in a home that he was trying to purchase. It's, it's a real problem in our country. It's not something that happened in the, in the, in the 50s, in the yep. 40s. It is something that is happening today. White supremacy is an issue. And, and of course, Lauren, we also know 380 cops uh, who were uh, identified on these Facebook Facebook page uh, with their racist uh, comments. Uh, some of them have been fired, but these are people who actually walk around with a badge and a gun. Yeah, well, you know, it should be no surprise to us, given the history in the United States of the justice system, that this is the case. It's always been the case. Uh, what we do about it really is the only question. How we handle it contemporarily is, is what the yep. question is. And uh, with Donald Trump around, it makes people a lot more bolder than they are, which is why we have Tucker Carlson all of a sudden on vacation, um, because, you know, there's always this group of people who tries to mainstream these views. So yep. we have to fight harder against it. Absolutely. All right, folks. Uh, I think now we can go to our American Workers segment sponsored by AFSCME. The mean green machine of AFSCME is on a roll. Earlier this month, the governor of Nevada signed a bill empowering 20,000 state employees with collective bargaining rights. They now have a seat at the table to negotiate for a fair return on their work, for safer working conditions, and more. This is the biggest expansion of collective bargaining rights for state employees 
in any state since 2003. And it comes on the heels of a similar win for Delaware state workers, improving their ability to bargain for better wages. In Illinois, AFSCME members endured a four-year reign of terror under former Governor Bruce Rauner. Rauner wouldn't even come to the table with us. But now, with a new pro-worker governor in office, we have a tentative contract that honors the contributions state employees make to their communities. State employees in Pennsylvania have reached a four-year tentative agreement with the Commonwealth. Members are currently voting on ratification, and preliminary results are very positive. We're also seeing progress on the federal level. The Public Service Freedom to Negotiate Act was just introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives. This bill gives public employees rights and protections enjoyed by those in the private sector. It requires public employers to recognize unions when a majority of employees want one, to bargain over wages, hours, and terms of employment, to provide access to a dispute resolution mechanism, and to allow union members to voluntarily deduct union dues from their paycheck. It was exactly a year ago that the Supreme Court issued its decision in Janus versus AFSCME. A lot of so-called experts thought we couldn't bounce back. They thought Janus would be a knockout blow. They thought wrong. Instead, we're growing, surging, and winning. Now, we need to build on the momentum. Call your member of Congress at this number and tell them to co-sponsor the Public Service Freedom to Negotiate Act. Tell them to unrig the economy by giving working people the power to take collective action through a strong union. Tell them to give working people the voice on the job they need and the basic respect they deserve. As I said, folks, we're here at the National Association of Black Journalists Commission here in Miami. And, of course, next year we're going to be in Washington, D.C., and then the following year in Houston. Just a few moments ago, uh, the uh, results reveal here at NABJ who the next president is going to be. So joining me right now is Dorothy Tucker, who is currently vice president of broadcast uh, on the board, who will uh, assume the mantle of uh, president when we uh, convene on, we end the convention on Sunday. Uh, she's a reporter, longtime reporter at WBBM-TV in Chicago. So uh, uh, you should be feeling pretty good. I am thrilled. Uh, I am numb. Uh, I am humbled. I, I, I am so grateful for the support of NABJ members, uh, for the people who campaigned with me, campaigned for me. Uh, it, it really was an honor, you know, to run this campaign and get an opportunity to talk to so many of our members and to hear their recommendations and their concerns and just engage with them. It, it, it was fabulous. And I so look forward to being able to lead an organization of such talented, beautiful, skilled, experienced journalists, you know, uh, and to take us into the next few years. You know. 4,421 members announced on Tuesday. Uh, more than 4,000 folks at this convention, our highest ever. 75% uh, of this membership, Gen X, Millennial, or Gen Z. So what's the plan? Well, the plan is to continue to do what we're doing. Uh, however, there are some things that we will build upon. You know, I mean, having been VP of broadcast for the last four years, uh, having sat next to Sarah Glover, who did a fabulous job, I learned a lot. Uh, I think there are some things that we can improve upon. And when we talk about young journalists, I really want to make sure that we set a system in place so that we can make, you know, make sure that they are in the pipeline and they can assume more leadership positions that their voices can be heard. But at the same time, you know, we have mid-year journalists and we have veteran journalists. So I want to make sure that we serve all of our journalists uh, with better training, uh, with more training, with more workshops, with, you know, collaborations between our organization and some other organizations so that we can network more. So, I mean, I, there, there is so much that I look forward to doing, you know. And, and the great thing about it is that I have a great board and people like you on the board who, who are hard workers, who have great ideas. I want to, so, you know, I'll still be here. <laughs> you know, and, and really, you know, when you, when you look at the makeup of the board, when you look at the people in the office, you know, I mean, the, the, the future is limitless. So I, ju I just left with the last question. I just left uh, a meeting uh, in the suite of our executive director. 
uh, with uh, four black general managers. And not a single one of them was on a panel. And one of them, several, a couple of them actually said they submitted workshops and none were accepted. And what I said to them is, I said, one, that ain't going to happen again because here they are at the pinnacle, if you will, of local television. And our folks need to see black general managers so we don't only think we can be television anchors or reporters. Well, you know, that's true. But you said four. And that, well, no, that was just who's in the media more, but yeah. well, but that even tells you, you know, that still is disturbing that only four would be here. The percentages of African Americans in GM positions in upper management, the numbers are not high, yep. and that is something that I am committed to changing. You know, and that is something that we're going to continue to talk to the newspapers and the networks and the digital companies to push for diversity and to make sure that we can increase those numbers. But as far as the organization, you know, I, I completely agree with you. We've got to make sure that people like that who in those powerful positions that our members get a chance to see them hear from them and touch them because you know they're, they're important one more final question like a black church like a preacher one more final question uh, the main the main reason uh, that uh, well, I say I did a video where look I served with all three people who run for president on different boards I said the most important thing for me was activism and I do believe that we are the largest journalism uh, organization of people of color. Uh, and we must make it perfectly clear to this industry that it's not going to be business as usual. And we're not going to be playing games and quiet when we see no black folks in executive positions. They need to feel us. And if we got to go hard. I, that has to happen because we're 24 years away from America, America, America being a nation majority of people of color. We should, we, we will not be having this conversation 24 years and should not. No, absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, when you look at the numbers uh, in the newsroom and upper management, they are dismal. So we have a lot of work to do. You know, I mean, we've done a lot of work and we will continue on this track to make sure that our message of uh, demanding diversity is heard. All right. President-elect Tucker. I'll see you at the meeting on Sunday. All right. All right. All right. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks. Dorothy Tucker again, uh, just elected uh, president of National Association of Black Journalists. And, yes, I was running unopposed, so I will continue for the next two years as vice president digital of the National Association of Black Journalists. Ken Lemon will be our VP uh, of broadcast. And so uh, we certainly look forward to our leadership. All right, folks, uh, beginning today all across the country, the movie The Brian Banks Story is debuting in theaters nationwide. He's a young man, of course. He was, acute, confu he was accused of rape, the woman who accused him. He went to prison. Uh, he, uh, later, she later recanted. He was exonerated. Now it's going to the big screen. We were at Essence Festival uh, in July. I had an opportunity to catch up with Brian Banks to talk about this powerful movie. Boyhood dreams got no place in a man's life. You need to concentrate on getting employed. Forget about football. When I was young, it was hard to see a way out. Football gave me an option. Brian Banks with the tackle. By the time I was 16, I had the attention of the NFL. The sky is the limit for this kid. So what happened? Why don't you play anymore? Brian Banks was 16 years old when he was accused of a crime he did not commit. He lost 11 years. Scholarship. He was prevented from playing football. The system is broken. We have 10 months to clear his name. If in that time they do not overturn your conviction, you'll be a prisoner again. We need something big, something extraordinary. It's extraordinary that I'm still here. I'm still standing. Yeah. You ever been locked up? It nearly killed me. How did you survive it? Almost did. And I met a man who showed me a different way. All you can control in life is how you respond to life. I know what I have to do now. You think you'll get another shot at the NFL? Trust me, we got a plan. I am innocent. And the truth matters. I know the system doesn't care about me. But you didn't deserve what happened to you. Brian's gonna run out of time. I'll tell you what's extraordinary. I am.
uh, first of all, man, uh, good to see you. We communicate on social thank media. You, thank Finally, you. actually get to meet as well. Uh, it, it still has to be surreal for you how this story has just reverberated around. And, and you are like meant so many other black men who have been accused of crimes, who've had to go to prison, who've had life derailed. Uh, but in some cases, guys went out 30, 40 years. Luckily, that wasn't the case for you. Yeah, um, my case was definitely uh, not a unique situation or not a rare situation, but the way it was handled and the expediency of it was definitely different. Um, but yeah, it, it was uh, it was definitely, you know, it's an, it's an experience and it's a family experience. It's not only just something that I went through, but it was something that my mom went through, something that my brother and sister went through. And it's something that I always talk about is wrongful convictions not only affect the person who is incarcerated, but the family, the community, and so forth. Um, so, yeah. And now, of course, uh, with this movie, uh, now by being on the big screen and being able to tell it, we think about uh, when they see us, what that did for the Exonerated Five, former Central Park Five. Uh, storytelling allows for a different audience to learn about a about what happened. Uh, it's, uh, it's so important that our stories, uh, people of color, black men, black women, it's, it's important that our stories are told I think we kind of live in a life of normalcy where so many tragic things happen to us that we normalize it in our minds and we don't share these stories because it's such a common experience that we go through. But I think it's important that we do turn these serious stories into forms of art for people who are not, uh, uh, not aware of the things that we encounter on an every single day basis and for those who need to be educated upon the judicial system, how our society works, how our society views us, looks at us, uh, and what we want to see change within our system. It's imperative that films like this are made and that we go out and support them. If we're not there to support them, then they assume that these stories don't matter. How, how was it, though, for you to, to sit there and watch you on the screen, but it wasn't you, and you're having to watch your story and receive it the way everybody else receives it? It's hard. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, it. it I, I've had an opportunity of being in several screenings of the film and you know I, I do more of crowd watching now that I do the film but for the first three times seeing it it was hard to disassociate myself from the film because it was something that I actually lived and experienced so watching certain moments of my life and tragic experiences be shown on the screen it was like reliving it all over again but I understand but I understand the importance and the value of making a film such as this yeah, it's, it's cool to get my story out there for people to know who I am and what I've been through. That's cool. More importantly, this is a movie for those who cannot speak for themselves. Those who are currently behind bars, who right now, as you and I speak, are in a cage for something that they didn't do. And that's my last question. How does it make you feel when you hear somebody say, I didn't do this, and the public go, oh, they all say that? You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where... I can relate all too well. There were so many days where I screamed big and played for somebody to listen and nobody did. And then when finally people started to listen, then other people started to come around and go, oh, he was telling the truth this whole time. I think it's just, you know, it's one of those situations where if you, have, if you weren't there and you don't know what actually happened, it's hard to look at somebody and say, you know, I do believe you that you didn't commit this crime. But if there's substantial evidence, if there's clear proof that this person didn't commit this crime and they can show you that, then you have a different situation, you got a different story. In my case, that was that situation. There was no DNA, there was no witnesses. This woman had five, six different stories, and still, they put me behind bars for six years. Brian Banks, looking forward to the movie. Brother, so glad uh, to see you here. Likewise. And I think folks will certainly uh, learn something from it. Thank you, it's an honor to meet you in person, finally. Thank you for everything that you do, keeping us informed. Please continue your work. We need All right. it. Will do, Thank I appreciate you, it. All right, folks, that's it, to that, that's it for this week's edition of Roland Martin Unfiltered. I certainly want to thank Johanna. Uh, I want to thank Lauren, Robert, for joining me on the show today. Uh, of course, we've had a grand time here at the National Association of Black Journalists Convention in Miami. We've been live streaming events uh, all day. We had a Hall of Fame luncheon earlier, and so if you missed that. My man Gary Howard, the first, the first black um, uh, head of the uh, Sports Editor Association, uh, gave a phenomenal speech. Tom Joyner got his Hall of Fame award as well, and so you can catch it on our YouTube channel, some of the other sessions as 
as well. Uh, I had a conversation with Uber executive Tony West, uh, the brother-in-law of Senator Kamala Harris. That's also available for you to check out. We also want to thank all of all the folks who are in the Roland Martin uh, Bring the Funk, Roland Martin Unfiltered Bring the Funk fan club. Your dollars make it possible for us to be able to come to places like NABJ, to be able to do this show, to bring you the different voices that you're not going to hear anywhere else. This is about we cover black people. We are about covering our issues, covering our people from our perspective, unapologetic. This is independently owned. No corporate entity owns us. It's about being able to tell our stories. I want you right now. Go to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Join our Bring the Funk fan club. Support us financially with your dollars. You can pay via cash app. You can pay via Square. You can pay via PayPal. But trust me, every dollar you give goes to our staff, goes to equipment, goes to every facet of this uh, of this uh, show to make possible what we do. Every Friday, we end the show, of course, with running the list of all the people who donate to our show. If you don't see your name, send me an email. We'll double check. Make sure to get it on there. And so we want to thank you as well. <clears throat> I'm not going to be here Monday. There'll be a guest host. I'll be in Los Angeles for the Cedric the Entertainer uh, golf tournament. I'll have my camera with me, bringing back some great interviews for you as well. And so we look forward uh, to that. I'll be back in the saddle on Tuesday. All right, folks, you have an absolutely great weekend. Uh, again, signing off here from NABJ in Miami. I'm Roland Martin. Holla! I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at AvalonWaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated.